Gracious God, we pray that you would be with us today, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would help us become more like Jesus today and every day. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen. Uh, according to an ancient Greek legend, a certain athlete ran well, but placed second. The winner was encompassed with praise, and eventually a statue was erected in his honor. But envy ate away at our guy, who placed second. He resented the winner, and he soon could think of little else. Eventually, he decided to take out his envy on the winner's statue. Night after night, he went to the statue under the cover of darkness, and he chiseled away at the base of the foundation of that statue. One night, in his violent anger, he chiseled just a little bit too far. And the heavy marble statue teetered on its base and crashed down on the disgruntled athlete. He died beneath the weight of the marble replica of the man he had grown to hate. He died beneath the weight of his envy and resentment. Interestingly, recently, scientists have found that in this case, the Greeks had it right. Because there's been a couple of different studies done in the last 30 years that have looked at silver medalists only to discover that they are less happy than both gold medalists and bronze medalists. They experience more sadness and sometimes even contempt, even though they've come in second place. In fact, they normally feel worse than those who didn't medal at all. Because, of course, while the bronze medalists tend to look down and realize that just a little bit worse and they wouldn't have made the platform at all, silver medalists look up and realize what could have been. If they had done just a little bit better, or if that guy hadn't done quite so good, I'd be standing where he is. The problem is one of perspective, of expectation, of comparison. You get a 10% raise and you are over the moon. Until you find out that that lazy coworker down the way got a 20% raise. And suddenly you are far short of that moon, aren't you? What, what is that inside of us? Someone else gets recognition. Someone else gets an unexpected inheritance. Someone else wins a prize. And we don't feel really any joy for them at all. We feel jealous. What is that? Now, now, sure, sure, if the person is relationally close to you, maybe family, maybe friends, I can be happy enough for them. But if it's someone I don't know very well, if, if really it could have been me, then I feel something very, very different. You see someone moving to the checkout line with lots of stuff. You're only carrying a couple of things. So you pick up the pace a little bit just to get in front of them in line, maybe. And then they win some prize. They're the millionth shopper. What is that you feel inside? Joy for them? Or hatred? Anger? Resentment? There, there has been an injustice. I was supposed to be 
except I was the one who went, what is that in us? By the way, this is one of the most insidious problems with all social media. Oh, look, they got to go on that, that, that trip with their grandkids again. Oh, look, they got to go out to a nice expensive dinner again. Oh, look, they got a new car, a new toy, a new remodel again. Must be nice. Oh, look, they just got recognized for that same thing that I do all the time without getting any recognition again. It must be nice. What is that in us? Why is it hard for most of us to rejoice in someone else's joy? Why do we have so much trouble when good happens to just someone else? Why does that ever make us feel resentful? Interestingly, I think, I, I feel it even more if it's an area where I feel some deficit. In other words, if I'm feeling like I have insufficient funds, I'm going to be more upset about your financial windfall. If I'm feeling particularly lonely, I'm going to be a little bit more jealous that you are out with your friends. If I'm feeling particularly upset, I will become more upset that you are happy. But notice, if I feel like I have enough of any of those, then I won't begrudge you getting a little bit more too much. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I hope you don't. It's probably just me, but, but I don't think I'm the only one. I think if we're being honest, we can all still hear our inner four-year-old saying, but that's not fair. Turns out Jesus has some things to say about all this, because it turns out maybe we're measuring and minding the wrong things, but we'll get there in a moment. First, let me just remind you where we are this summer. This summer, we are looking at Jesus' parables, because one of the primary ways that Jesus taught His disciples how to be disciples was through parables, through these little stories. And remember, Eugene Peterson's understanding of parables, this brief, commonplace, unpretentious story is just thrown into the conversation and lands at our feet, compelling notice. It is quite literally something that is thrown alongside of. That's what the word means. To which our first response should be, what is that doing there? But that's also the challenge. Because these stories seem to be Stories that Jesus just sort of drops there on the road and it gives us the choice. We can pick it up and enter in or we can just keep on walking and miss it. But remember, Jesus is using these as tools. He's trying to change people. In other words, He's asking us to hear them and sit with them and wrestle with them and respond to them. Of course, that doesn't mean that these are easy. As much as we have heard these stories over and over and over again, some many, many, many times, the reality is they're not as simple as we try and make them. They're not as obvious as we try and understand them. And of course, because we've heard them before, they start to lose some of their impact because these are stories we've already learned, and therefore we can dismiss them as basic or trivial, or trite. 
but maybe we can do better. And so today, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 27. The parable is going to start in chapter 20, but I want us to have some context for this. So we're going to start in Matthew 19, verse 27. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and again about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day He will be raised to life. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. 
when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Amen. I'm fairly certain that this is one of those parables we're not really supposed to like very much, because sometimes it's a little bit too relatable. But there may be some good news in here as well. So let's take a look back through all this. This all seems to stem from Peter's question. We've left everything, so what are we going to get? What's in it for us? What will there be for us in the kingdom? Which, which, to be fair, is often also our question as well. Sure, sure, I'll be faithful. I'll do what's right. But what am I, I going to get? What, what status will I achieve? What's in it for me? The issue here is one of maybe compensation, maybe motivation. And what makes this particularly hard is that Jesus has just kind of flipped the script, telling them that the first will be last and the last will be first. So it makes this all a little bit more confusing. That, that doesn't actually make much sense. I mean, if you think about it for you, what does that actually mean in real life? The first will be last and the last will be first. How, how does that affect you or guide you on a Tuesday at 10 a.m.? No, 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 wait, the first will be last and the last will be first. Therefore, I will not do this and I will do that. How does that guide you? Don't worry, Jesus wants to make this clear, so He tells a parable. He throws a story out. There's a man, he owns a vineyard. And after all the planting and the growing and the, the working and the weeding and the waiting, it's finally time for harvest. And the reality is that this needs to be done quickly so that a rainstorm or hail, let alone a late heat wave or an early freeze, wipe out the whole crop. If you pick the grapes too early, the wine will be bitter or underdeveloped, but if you wait too long, there won't be a crop. And therefore, when it's harvest time, it is harvest time. So the man goes out early in the morning and he brings in the workers. He then goes out a little bit later, finds more workers, brings them into work. And then again later, and then again later, and then again later. The reality is that these would have been kind of common everyday day laborers. Uh, they would have been working just to get by day to day. In fact, the Torah actually had some very specific instructions. They have to actually be paid at sunset because, they'll, because of their situation, they will need that money at sunset so that they can feed their families. They, they'll need it just to survive. That said, at this point, they aren't the point of the story. Jesus isn't commenting on the workers as much as the owner. Let's also recognize that we don't want to conclude that some of these later workers are necessarily slackers. They could have simply been working somewhere else earlier in the day, or maybe they're the kind of workers who don't, get, who don't go early in the draft. But the point is that the owner keeps going out, keeps finding more workers to bring in, and then brings them in and puts them to work. At the end of the day, 
it's time to pay them. He pays them in reverse order, and that's where the trouble starts. Because if you think about it, if he, if he went the normal way, if you paid the first people first, they'd take their money, they'd go, then you'd pay the next group, and they'd go, and there wouldn't really be much of an issue here. And the story wouldn't pack very much of a punch. But Jesus knows what he's doing, and so he flips the story around. And so you can feel the ecstatic joy of those last hired at their good fortune. I got paid for a whole day, and I worked for an hour. This is the best day ever. And you can feel the expectation then of the first hired for how much they're going to go. Okay, and I started at sunrise, and it's 12 hours, so if they got a dinner, oh my goodness. It's like two weeks of pay here. This is going to be fantastic, which is then why you feel the disappointment and the anger and the resentment of those all-day workers when they only get what was promised. Because, of course, the reality is they, they worked longer. They worked harder. They should get more. And if they don't, well, that's not, that's not fair. Never mind that if the later workers hadn't shown up and there wasn't that comparison point, no one would, no one would care. This would just, it'd be a pretty unremarkable story. Some guys came to the field and they worked and then they got paid. The end. In fact, looking back through this parable, there's a couple things that, that I think we take issue with that, that, that kind of stand out to me and I think maybe we all can relate to them. Th three little words that I think cause us trouble. The word expected and equal and envious. Expected. They expected to receive more. Equal. You have made them equal to us. And then finally, envious. Are you envious because I'm generous? You see, a big part of the problem that the all-day workers faced is that their expectations changed. Part of what got these all-day workers in trouble is that now they expected something different from what they agreed to, from reality, really. And of course, we know that this happens all the time. In our own lives, I wonder how often our disappointments, our disagreements, our differences simply stem from our ever-changing and often uncommunicated expectations. I expect this. You expect that. So it's, and we're not talking about it, so no wonder why there's now some conflict there. But then as we keep going, there's another source of their frustration, and it may be the bigger issue. It's that the owner made these last hireds equal to us first hired. You see, it's not just the money. It's, it is the money. But it's not just the money. Because the deeper issue is that it made our value the same. Notice, they're sort of not actually focused as much on the money or their own expectation. The real issue is that the owner saw those less thans as equal tos. They only worked an hour. We worked all day, and then you made them like us and paid us all the same. 
I wonder if sometimes our resentment is less about what and more about who. I wonder if sometimes I don't, I don't want to have to see others as equal or more than. I wonder if that's ever the source of my feelings of envy. It's interesting that in all of these, I feel like we become less when I'm having trouble seeing you as an equal and someone makes you an equal, I, I, I go down in value. When my expectations change, I, I sometimes go down in value. When I'm envious, I, I feel myself below, even though nothing's happened to me. Though taking a step back even further, it's, it's interesting and, and probably telling that most of us, when we read this parable, we associate ourselves with those who went to work earlier in the day. I mean, if generally speaking, you see yourselves as a just-arrived worker, then this is a great story and there's not much issue here. And yet, almost instinctively, we know that, that we're those first workers. And therefore, our real fear is that someone is getting more grace than we are. Someone is getting a better deal than we are. It means, and we don't normally go quite this far, it means that we could be getting away with more than we are, which probably means we're missing the point. I mean, maybe we, like Peter, are simply asking the wrong question. Maybe the question isn't, we are following, so what are we going to get? Maybe the real question is, how can we be more faithful? How can we serve better? How can we be more like the owner? But we'll come back to that in just a minute. Because I want to finish this passage. Our author, Matthew, is doing an amazing job of putting this all together. Right after Jesus tells Peter that the first will be last and the last will be first, and right after this parable with the last being first and the first being last, and right after Jesus tells them that He's about to be sacrificed and mocked and flogged and killed, only to be raised to new life again. It's at this point that Matthew then shares a living parable with us about a time that they all got it wrong. Because the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, asks for a more prominent placement for her two sons. And Jesus tells her that that's not for him to grant, not to mention they may not have what it takes. But then the other ten disciples hear about it. That these two almost got a more prestigious position. Jesus has just said, you're all going to sit on thrones in the kingdom. There's twelve thrones. You're going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. So they should be good, but they hear that James and John almost got the better seats, the, the two thrones that are a little higher than all the rest. And our passage is very telling, and they became indignant, to which Jesus again has to tell them that the kingdom is marked by service and sacrifice, not power and pomp. This is one of the many moments in the Bible where it is simply too easy to picture Jesus putting His head in His hands again, going, come on, guys, I can't be any clearer. I've said it, 
I've given you a parable about it. I'm literally living it out before you, and you're still not getting it. The amount of repetition in this passage is sort of set. The last will be first and the first will be last. Now I'm going to tell you a story. Now the last will be first and the first will be last. I came to serve. The kingdom of God is not like that. And they're still not getting it. Luckily for them and for us, Jesus is patient. Jesus is full of grace. Which gets us back into this parable for a moment. Because remember, the main point of this parable is about the kingdom of God. That's what we're actually talking about here. The kingdom of God is like a landowner who kept bringing in workers and putting them to work, treating them as equal, seeing value in them. You see, there's something about the kingdom of God that's backwards and inside out and upside down to our eyes since our eyes are so used to living in this kingdom, the kingdom of the world. And Jesus is inviting us to learn how to live in a different way, in a different kind of kingdom. Because pursuing God's will done on earth as it is in heaven means we're living by a different set of values. We're pursuing a different set of goals. We're living by a different set of rules than everyone else. Which actually should set us free from envy and resentment. Because we're going in a different direction. What if we didn't need to be first all the time? What if we didn't need to have the most all the time? What if we didn't need to be better than them? Because the reality is all of those pursuits get in the way of our serving, gets in the way of our following, gets in the way of our becoming more like Jesus. It is hard to follow after Jesus if I'm also trying to beat you. It's hard to pursue Jesus if I also need more than that guy. It's hard to pursue Jesus if I also need to be better than you, than those people. I wonder if that is why Jesus actually is calling our attention in this parable to the owner. Not because of his weird way of paying people. That's not the point of the story. Don't go pay people in weird ways. That's not helpful. But because the owner kept going out, kept pursuing, kept finding us, kept bringing people back in, kept valuing all of us. Maybe the real message of this passage is that God seeks us so much more than we've ever seeked God. Maybe we already have received more grace than we'll ever need. Maybe the grace we've received is more than enough. And maybe if we knew that, we'd be set free from envy and comparison and resentment. Let's pray. Lord God, you know that we live in a world of comparison. You know that too often we are looking more at what others are getting and what we're missing out on and 
how we rank and, and stack up to the person next to us. We're more concerned with that than we are concerned with who you are and who you've called us to be. But Lord, you teach us that the first will be last and the last will be first. And so maybe we need to learn how to live in your kingdom better. Maybe we need to learn how to serve first. Maybe we could all learn to follow you more. So Lord God, help us. Help us follow. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen.